I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. The Phoenix of True Nature Session, Talk 5, Sunlit, Moonlit Buddhas. Blue Cliff Record Case 3, Master Ma is Unwell. A student went to visit Master Ma when Master Ma was on his deathbed. How are you feeling, venerable teacher? The student asked. Ma replied, Sun face Buddha, moon face Buddha. Day lit in the sun, the master appears sick. Once on the outside, so strong, confident, a clear leader known for his ability to awaken students in a single shout. Now this leader is weak, bedridden, perhaps soiling the sheets as the muscles of the colon weaken, perhaps unable to eat, spending most of his time sleeping. The koan does not say what Master Ma is dying from. Could be pneumonia or a virus. An epidemic could be surging through the capital, claiming those in later stages of life. We do not know. We just know that he is bedridden and dying. His body is failing, like all of our bodies will. Just as Master Ma, in all of his awakening, cannot control the disease that is moving through his body, threatening his vitality, his physical well-being. The daylit, the sun-facing, or seemingly external experiences we cannot control. How will the body feel in five years, in five hours, in five minutes, in five seconds. We cannot control this. A tumor found, a wound that won't heal, a persistent cough, a heart that skips a beat once too many in sleep, a stroke, a new variant of the coronavirus, a seemingly strange and confounding autoimmune disease an itch, a tickle in the throat, a moment of bliss moving up the spine, arousal, the heart closing around a shameful thought, a sharp, strong sensation in the knee, stabbing sensations, a chill, gratitude, compassion, flooding, warming the emotional body. The heat goes out in a house. The rains don't stop. Another snowfall, another storm. The roof starts leaking. Plumbing malfunctions. A control panel fails. A partner falls ill. A parent gets in an accident. A friend is hospitalized. A sibling loses their only child. 
be it a natural disaster, an illness, or some other change in our seemingly external world, losses happen way out of our control. Losses happen. Friends and family members get sick. We ourselves get sick. We can't control how. We endure deaths of all kinds throughout the course of a life. We endure deaths of all kinds throughout the course of a life. These deaths, you can say, actually are what shape a life. Think of all the unpredictable circumstances you have faced. Someone you love leaves unexpectedly. You get sick. A parent gets sick. You have to fly in to take care of them. A partner's illness may end up sending us on a new career path to make enough money to support the family. A parent's accident might bring us back to our childhood home, giving opportunity for reconciliation or a chance to see our childhood from a new and different light or to reconnect with old friends. A friend moving away may open space in our lives for new connections, new projects. The future as it always is, is completely unknown. The future, as it always is, is completely unknown. During this session, I've been feeling into the sense that I cannot feel the future. (laughs) No matter how many thoughts the mind comes up with that seem to pertain to the future, we really can't even get a whiff of what's coming. We cannot control the next thought that arises. We cannot control the next thought that will arise. Have you noticed that in meditation? Out of the blue, thinking about 1990, we can't even control something so intimate, so seemingly personal as body sensations as the next thought, they happen. They happen us, they shape this life. They stay and then they vanish. And something new always is. We make predictions though. Predictions give us a sense of control. Predictions are the habit of the daylit mind. We try to get all the pieces to line up, to work out, of course, in our favor. We make thousands of small predictions, some on the course level of mind. I know the timekeeper is going to hit that bell now, 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 come on, now. Oh, he's fallen asleep. He's not even paying attention. I need to go hit that bell. Or we plan at the next kinhen, I will take the back sidewalk, drink some tea in the sun, refresh, and then be awake for the next period. And on a course level, sometimes we actually seem to hit 
the prediction. We know the bell is going to ring. We have a feeling and the timekeeper is moving his arm to hit it just as we have that thought. Or we do manage to get tea and sun lined up during Kinhin. But what we don't know or can't predict is what it will actually feel like to experience the sound of the bell. Where we will feel it, if we will even hear it, how long we will sit in its resonant tones actually not wanting to get up, or the euphoria or relief of lifting the foot off of that painful knee and shifting the legs, or a sudden stillness that overcomes the body and it actually feels good to just sit. We can never predict the inner experience. We can get these seemingly external things to line up, but the, the feeling of it, the, the content, the richness, the texture, it's so unknown. It's so ephemeral and changing and delightful and everything, right? On a subtle level, we predict ourselves or we make up ourselves. We can watch this happen during Zazen or during Sishin. What is the sense of self made of when you look? What is the sense of self made of? Sometimes just looking back with awareness at this idea of a self, a subject, it vanishes. doesn't seem to hold up in the light of our awareness. That's interesting. Could be a liberative experience. Say unfindable. Thoughts don't seem to, these self-referential thoughts that we have constantly, what are they pointing to? They also don't seem to hold up in the light of awareness. Can look back at the thinking mind or at thought and what happens. Make a thought happen in your mind now. Think something. And try to catch it. Or feel into thought from the inside. Om ka 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 bi san ma e so ka. 
good practitioner. I am a lousy practitioner. We shine the light of awareness on thought. What happens? Thich Nhat Hanh says, when we look at any action, we believe there needs to be a separate actor existing behind it. The wind blows, yet really there is no blower. There is only the wind. And if it doesn't blow, it's not the wind at all. When we have a thought, we may believe there's a thinker existing separately from the thought. As we cannot find a blower outside of the wind, nor a rainer outside of the rain, in the same way there is no thinker existing outside of thought. There is no thinker existing outside of thought. from one perspective, obvious. And sometimes it feels like thoughts are happening on this screen. Obviously, there's a thinker in there making them happen. Or we're busy just being caught by them that we don't even think where they're coming from. There can be this illusion that there is a thinker Thich continues, when we think something, we are those thoughts. We and our thoughts are not separate. When we say something, those words are us. There's no speaker outside the words. When we do something, our action is us. There is no actor outside of the action. Thoughts are self-aware self-liberating, self-revealing, self-vanishing. I always loved these meditation instructions from Koan Ejo. We're not chanting this chant during this session, though I wish we were. It says, if you do not propagate thoughts, they will not continue themselves. Just breathing in, just breathing out, just so. Sitting under an open sky, weightless as a flame. Sitting under an open sky, weightless as a flame. Even if 84,000 thoughts come and go, each will display itself as the luminosity of perfect knowing itself. Even if 84,000 thoughts come and go, I always love that line. Each will display itself as the luminosity of perfect knowing itself. If you do not hold to them and allow them to just go on their own way. 84,000 thoughts come and go. You don't need to judge yourself for thinking or get in a war with thought. Koan Ejo is not about that in his Azen instructions. Even Koan Ejo had thought, thousands of thoughts coming and going. We can know 
the light and space of thought directly. That's what he's saying. We can know the luminosity of thought, that the one who is aware and thought are not separate phenomena. From the inside can let thoughts arise and sit inside their arising. Let thoughts illumine from the inside. This is a a practice I don't recommend as like your stabilizing practice or your regular zazen practice, but it is interesting to do during session to just look at this whole mechanism of thinker and thought, especially when the mind is quieter and more settled and thoughts are less sticky, perhaps. To become aware of the thought stream however you experience that. Perhaps for you, thoughts are mostly image. Perhaps they are sound. Some people actually see words and they think. And to sit inside their arising Like thoughts are bubbles you play with as a kid. And you sit inside the space and luminosity of each thought. Inseparable from your awareness, inseparable from mind. It's not your mind. Even that sense of or thought of my thoughts is a thought. Jogan has been using this phrase, or at least used it once, trace the thoughts back. It's... That might be a more direct way to what I'm saying. Trace the thoughts back. And you see that there is no thinker. You come to the light of awareness. You see through that whole facade of subject object, consciousness, perception. In the Dzogchen tradition, they have many analogies for the self-liberative nature of thought. One is like meeting an old friend 
recognize the light of awareness displaying as thought, like meeting an old friend. Koan Ajo says, like meeting your grandfather in the village. Wouldn't that be an interesting way to relate to thoughts? Oh, old friend, I see you. Thanks for stopping by. Another analogy, like drawing water, drawing on water, like with a stick. They arise and vanish, no trace remains. Can trust that. Self-arising, self-vanishing, without leaving a trace. Like snow falling on or in the ocean, they return to the source, the ground of being, the ocean of awake awareness. Cohen Ajo continues, this display of luminosity must not just be something you experience in sitting, but in each step, this step, this step, are all the walking of luminosity. All through the day be dead to personal views or fragmented thoughts. Breathing in, breathing out, hearing, touching, without thoughts of separation is just the silent illumination of luminosity in which body and mind are single. Thus, when someone calls, you immediately answer. In this luminosity, usual people and sages, deluded and enlightened, are one. In the midst of impermanence, this luminosity is unobstructed. Forest, flowers, grasses, leaves, humans and animals, large or small, long or short, square or round, all display themselves simultaneously, free of discriminating thoughts or intention. This luminosity is unobstructed in impermanence. Luminosity is its own open brilliance. It does not depend on your mind. Luminosity has no location. When Buddhas appear in this universe, it does not arise with them. When Buddhas cease, luminosity does not cease. When you are born, luminosity is not born. When you die, luminosity does not die. Buddhas do not have more of it. Sentient beings do not have less. If you are deluded, it is not. If you are enlightened, it is not. It has no rank, no form, and no name. This is the body of totality of all things. You cannot grasp it. You cannot throw it away. It is unattainable. Although it is unattainable, it penetrates this whole body. It goes on. Sounds hear themselves, body feels itself, hands feel themselves, thoughts know themselves, breath breathes itself, floor illumines itself, there is no subject 
object consciousness. Sun-faced, day-lit appearances have a luminosity of themselves. They are self-aware, self-liberated, perfectly expressing, sacred of themselves. Everything is in its right place. Everything is in its right place. Sun-faced Buddha sits upright, clear and erect, timeless in her presencing, wakeful, aware. Moonlit, back to the moon-faced Buddha, moonlit, the master, Master Ma, appears at peace. We cannot know his inner experience. Yet here he is responding to a student, giving a teaching all while he is dying. Moonlit, the master knows his own mind. The changing appearances are simply changing appearances. The body has always been dying since he was born. To remember we are already dying. All those we love are already dying. We're chanting this every night. We are already dying. The moment we were born, we are already dying. To take it up, this exhale, my last exhale, this inhale, perhaps my last inhale, I do not know. Don't let the mind project into the future. This is your last. Your only. This is my last exhale. So intimate with that exhale. Down to the bottom. Resting in that silent space before inhalation, dead, quiet, at peace. Is there anyone there to conceive of life or death? No life, no death. And then the inhale comes naturally on its own, if it comes. That's something you can try with each breath. The Buddha taught recollection of each breath as potentially the last breath or each meal or each bite of food, potentially the last. We are already dying. And from time to time, especially at this stage in Sashin, to rein in the thinking mind, to deliberately rein in the thinking mind or trace back thought. Let it return to silence. 
or quiet. And just rest for as long as you can rest. Sit in the quiet of awareness, dead to personal views or fragmented thoughts, as Koan Ajo says. Spacious, aware, undifferentiated, whole. We are already dying. This could be your last Dharma talk, your last sitting period, your last sashin. We don't really know. There's so much we don't really know. I think, I hope, sashin reveals that. And what we don't know about dying, which is a lot, because we're not dying right now at least we're not dead I think what we don't know about dying we infer or assume so we project perhaps I don't know if everyone does this but perhaps you project fears onto the dying process and perhaps Similarly, project fears onto any unknown or uncharted territory of body-mind, landscape. Future situations that are unknown. And so perhaps the uncharted territory of body-mind landscape, because there's fear of feeling something we don't know what it's going to feel like, we may recoil just from the unfamiliarity of something new. Fear of fear is an interesting experience. I remember a period of time walking into the zendo before the evening block during Sashin, that longer block, that two and a half hour block at the end of a retreat. Sometimes it's three hours. Sometimes it's even longer. And just having that f- bracing feeling in my body of like, okay, I'm going to do it. Afraid to feel what might arise. Already prepared to defend against it afraid to know the anxiety and restlessness of my own mind, my own body, but afraid not of what was happening in the moment, just what I imagined was going to happen, already reacting to that, imagining that projection into the future, which I think we can do with dying and death. Afraid of fear, I learned to guard and contract before anything could harm me. It's like a preemptive strike, which is similar to the one the inner critic does. It's like I'll criticize you before other people do. So it won't hurt as bad, maybe. You won't have to feel vulnerable in front of someone else. One of Byron Katie's exercises for working with death or fear of death 
or the dying process is to list your fears, to write them down. It's one of her big strategies for working with the mind is to write it down. Because often, and this is very true, often we're afraid, but it's like kind of inchoate. Like what are we afraid of? It just kind of lingers there as a dullness or a vague sense of something bad is going to happen or something is going to go wrong. But to ask, well, what are you afraid of, mind, body, heart? What are you afraid of? And to get, get a sense. It might not be everything you get at once, but you can start to, to see, see the fears. And then you have a little bit more, we have a little bit more ability to meet them directly. When I make my list, there's pain, there's fear of being alone, of being separated from loved ones, of not knowing what to do, of not knowing how to die, being out of control, not being able to control my body, losing my mind, losing myself, being forgotten or neglected. And then she entertains, Byron Katie entertains that perhaps these are the fears we have that keep us actually from living our lives fully. And that's interesting to look at from that light, if you make a list like this. Once fears are made conscious or more conscious, I find I can begin to work with them. When I'm afraid to feel fear, my fears remain unconscious and they come out in a kind of wily sometimes harmful ways. Zazen can help us open to the fears we may have around our physical death. I actually think Zazen is really excellent practice for working with the fears that we have around our physical death. And going along with that, the fears that we may have to actually living our lives fully. So Zazen Sashin especially puts us into a direct, sustaining relationship with things that we normally don't want to feel. I'm sure a lot of people during this retreat have felt things they didn't want to feel or perhaps afraid to feel. Pain, loneliness, not knowing what to do, not being in control. It's one of the geniuses of Sashin. We submit to the schedule. Those that you, of you at home, you submit to the schedule that you can follow, and then you just have to show up. And you're not in control in that sense. You really give up a fair amount of control. So in Sashin and in Zazen, what we are afraid of is able to move from being a fantasy in our minds to something that we can directly feel and explore. A few people yesterday reported how being with pain has transformed your relationship to pain, how pain has become intense sensation, which is one of the ways Chosen Roshi likes to talk about pain. It's not pain 
pain already has that negative connotation often for a lot of us, that aversion. But can it be, can you open it up to be intense sensation? Exploring how pain moves, how it has different textures and expressions. Someone was describing it, it felt like it's, it's dancing, oh, dancing with your pain. I've been inspired to hear how life-giving experiencing pain can be, how energizing people have found being with pain to be. Something that we're often so afraid of. I see on this side, working with people, that it's so life-giving, it's so energizing. That's interesting. In Zazen, we sit alone with ourselves and we see, experience directly how we aren't in control. We see and experience directly how much we actually are capable of feeling. How connected we are. Even despite being separated by distance and screens, still there's a sense of connection. Isn't that interesting? And so we're doing this practice alone, and yet a lot of people describe after Sashin feeling more connected to the people that they were practicing with than when we're talking. We come to welcome fear in Zazen, come to welcome the one who wants to be in control, to welcome confusion, resistance, hope, love, emptiness. We get to know our minds and our habits. We get to return to emptying out, to letting go, We get to feel the excitement as we approach moments of quiet and spaciousness. We learn to find peace and equanimity in the various displays of mind and body. We learn to settle, perhaps discovering new dimensions of stillness and solitude within, perhaps sinking into the deep truths of emptiness, no fixed self, knowing directly the spaciousness and the luminosity of experience. Moonface Buddha lies in a reclining posture, reminding us of our moonlit lives, the inner life of night and meditation, the inner stillness, quiet, and spaciousness of the heart. The space of dreams, those illusory visitors that come when the egoic self, the sun-faced self, dies to the world. The senses in their outward-facing daytime roles dissolving into the mind ground. So naturally happens every night, happens every nap, happens every sleepy period in the zendo. The body 
at night enters sleep paralysis, physically appearing as a corpse, dead to the world. Dead to the world, we continue to live in this other realm, this other state, bodiless, formless, enraptured in a world of illusion and deep, dreamless sleep. You could say we die every night, moon face Buddha, dying to our dreaming, dying to our sleeping, then dying again to our waking, discontinuous, each its own world, each its own universe. The Buddhist teachings point to this life as dream. We've been chanting every evening the verse of the Diamond Sutra that says, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom and a dream. So is this fleeting world. This is a dream. This is a dream. I think one of the ways I got hooked in practice was Chosen Roshi invited me into that contemplation early on in my practice. She said, how do you know you're not dreaming? I was in Sanzen. I still don't know. It could have been a dream. How do you know you're not dreaming? And I walked around looking for proof that I either was dreaming or wasn't dreaming. And things became more magical in waking life. One of the first Lojung slogans in the seven-point mind training method is, this is a dream. And so you carry it around and investigate. Is this life, this what we call waking experience, a dream? Are you dreaming this right now? Dreaming this Dharma talk, this session, perhaps dreaming this entire life? I don't know. I'm going to read something from... This is called Dreams of Light by Andrew Holacek. <clears throat> this is from Kempo Sultrum Gompso Rinpoche. He says, this is in response to a question of whether you're dreaming or not. He says, maybe you feel like saying, because dreams are never so vivid as this, colors are not so bright, forms, sounds, smells, tastes and touch are not so clear and precise. However, someone else might disagree and say their dreams are even more vivid than their daytime experience. Does this then make their dreams waking experience and their waking experience a dream? Does it mean if your faculties become impaired so that you no longer experience things so clearly and precisely, that your life becomes a dream. One has to admit 
that there is no characteristic of waking experience that clearly distinguishes it from dreaming. It is only a matter of degree and of one's emotional predisposition. You believe you are awake because you want to feel secure and feel that the world is solid, real, and supportive around you. If you were to seriously doubt you were awake, you would feel frightened and confused. The stability of the experience of being awake reassures you, so you believe in it and give it a reality that you do not afford to dreams. If you suffer in a dream, you are happy to let it go when it ends, feeling reassured that it was not real anyway. If you suffer in what you call your waking life, you get emotionally involved in it and afford it the status of absolute reality. And then this is from Kempo Rinpoche. The distinction that we make between waking appearances and dream appearances is purely based upon the fact that we do not wake up from our waking experience. The waking experience has been going on since a period of time that never began and is never really interrupted except by the additional overlay of dreamtime confusion. We know that dreams are not real because we wake up from them periodically and therefore have contrast. However, we have no such contrast by which to recognize the unreality of conventional appearances. All the things that we experience when we dream are obviously the appearance of habits that we have somehow been, that have somehow been placed in our minds. In turn, we understand that the reactions we have to dream images, such as pleasure and pain, and the various sensations that we have in dreams, do not have the, the slightest true reality. Although these sensations and experiences are quite vivid, when we awake from sleep, we understand that they are not real. The only reason that we do not have the same understanding of conventional waking experiences is that we have not woken up from them yet. So, are you dreaming? This Sashin historically commemorates the Buddha's passing into Parinirvana. The Buddha, like Master Ma, was sick when they were dying, their body already failing, and then they ate a poisonous, story says either it was a mushroom or a spoiled piece of pork, and um, got sick, got quite sick, and uh, died shortly after that. I'd like to read, just to honor um, this session, and because I think this story is so powerful, some accounts from um, the Buddha's passing into Parinirvana. This is from the Parinirvana Sutta, the Digha Nikaya. This is as the Buddha was getting ready to die. Please, Ananda, prepare for me a couch between the twin solid trees with the head to the north. I am weary, 
My body is weary, Ananda, and I want to lie down. So it, so be it, Lord. The venerable Ananda did as the Blessed One asked him to do. Then the Blessed One lay down on his right side in the lion's posture, resting one foot upon the other, and so disposed himself mindfully and clearly comprehending. At the time, the twin solitaries broke, broke out into full bloom. Though it was not the season of flowering, and the blossoms rained upon the body of the Tathagata and dropped and scattered and were strewn upon it in worship of the Tathagata. Sandalwood powder poured from the sky and rained down on the body of the Tathagata and dropped and scattered and were strewn upon it in worship of the Tathagata. The sound of heavenly voices and heavenly instruments made music in the air out of reverence for the Tathagata. The um, posture that the Buddha was laying in before they passed into Parinirvana is the posture that we have on the altar. I don't know if you can see it right now, um, but when, when we have the other um, lens on the camera, you can look at the altar and see that we have both the upright Buddha, sun-faced Buddha, and the, the lying-down Buddha. And maybe later in this session we'll do some lying-down meditation. I want to read the... Um, how the Blessed One passed into Nibbana. Chosen Roshi often reads this, and it's always so moving for me. The Blessed One entered the first jhana. Rising from the first jhana, he entered the second jhana. Rising from the second jhana, he entered the third jhana. Rising from the third jhana, he entered the fourth jhana. These are all... Um, states or absorption states of concentration, ones that the Buddha had mastered and could obviously move in and out of as he wished. And rising out of the fourth jhana, he entered the sphere of inf infinite space. And rising from the attainment of the sphere of infinite space, he entered the sphere of infinite consciousness. And rising from the attainment of the sphere of infinite infinite consciousness, he entered the sphere of nothingness. And rising from the attainment of the sphere of nothingness, he entered the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception. And rising out of the attainment of the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception, he attained the cessation of perception and feeling. And the Venerable Ananda spoke, saying, Venerable Ananda, Anuruta, the Blessed One has passed away. No, friend Ananda, the Blessed One has not passed away. He has entered the state of cessation of perception and feeling. So he went into his deepest, the deepest state of mind that he knew, the deepest absorption, concentration that he knew right before he passed away. And then he came out of it. 
Then the Blessed One, rising from the cessation of perception and feeling, entered the, sp the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception. Rising from the attainment of the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception, he entered the sphere of nothingness. Rising from the attainment of the sphere of nothingness, he entered the sphere of infinite consciousness. Rising from the attainment of the sphere of infinite consciousness, he entered the sphere of infinite space. Rising from the attainment of the sphere of infinite space, he entered the fourth jhana. Rising from the fourth jhana, he entered the third jhana. Rising from the third jhana, he entered the second. Rising from the second, he entered the first. And then he went back into the fourth jhana and died. When Chosen Roshi reads that, um, she often just imagines, I think this is, is true, when a whale is ready to die, it takes one last deep dive, as deep as it can go, and then comes up and dies. I don't know, that always makes me delighted and in awe. Jogan said, Sensei said, yesterday, it's okay to love what you love. And Buddha loved the Dharma and the freedom of mind. And so when he died, he did it one last time. <laughs> he entered the deepest states of meditation he knew. To love what you love only you can do the uniqueness of your own living and dying. And it's not that we practice so we can become someone else. We don't practice so that we can become Master Ma or the Buddha or Hogan Roshi or Chosen Roshi. We practice to become ourselves more completely and to love what we love and to do it completely for the benefit of all beings. This is your one life. You are the only one who can live it. And while you can't control what happens to an extent, you get to find liberation and live love, bring aspiration and bodhicitta awakening into every piece of your living and dying. Master Ma, the Buddha, they're living, they're dying a teaching. I was thinking of Thich Nhat Hanh, and occasionally I like to just make sure he's still alive. And um, he had a stroke six years ago and hasn't spoken since. He's 94 now. And uh, I remember Hogan talking about his friend Fred Epsteiner, I think got to see him after his stroke and reported just how palpable his peace and clarity in his presence. Um, now he's living at the monastery where he was ordained. He was ordained 70 years ago. He's still unable to speak. But his son faced life, such a rich example of someone just responding to circumstances. I remember an earlier interview with him. He said really his vision for his life was 
to live at this monastery where he ordained and maybe become the head priest there, but not to leave Vietnam. So it's interesting that he's back there after being a world traveler and starting so many centers all over the world. And he did because he was responding to the circumstances of his life. A war broke out in his country. He didn't take either side. He encouraged peace activism all over the world and then started all of these centers and taught in a way that he needed to teach, in a way that only he could teach as a revolutionary, as a peace activist, as someone so deeply committed to awakening and sharing the awakened mind in the socially engaged way that he was able to bring forward. Tai's sun-faced life brought him to confront systemic oppressions. And he asked practitioners to extend their field of bodhicitta, compassion, awareness, beyond their self-concern and well-being and the well-being of their own communities and to look out into the whole world as part of their network, as part of their practice. And now for six years, he practices as a simple monk, moonlit. He lives the peace that sustained his teaching and activism. He is that peace. So for us here, we're in Sashin, and our practice is to live and die this luminosity. Sunlit, upright Buddha, moonlit, dreamtime Buddha, dying and being born with each breath. 